Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm the founder of the Think Tank for Women in Business and Technology and the FemPIC platform with the mission of raising women's socioeconomic status. My guest today is Valerie Alexander, the CEO of Speak Happiness and author, speaker, and screenwriter who argues that emerging culture shifts in future generations are slowly beginning to bring about a world with greater equality and happiness. But of course, we all need to work together to bring these efforts to fruition. Valerie has also been our guest speaker on a number of FemPeak events, and especially our popular series on how to pitch yourself. Be sure to head over to FemPeak under the event section and find the videos on there on demand. Now, here's my interview with Valerie Alexander. Why don't you start by explaining a little bit about what you do and, and you know, your, your Well, what, what I do now is I agitate in the world towards greater equality, greater equality for women, greater equality for any disadvantaged group, whether it's racial minorities, LGBT. There's so many groups that we don't even think about when we look about equality and diversity and inclusion. The d differently abled, we have so little diversity work that gears towards people who are disabled and um, and what makes us ableist in our decisions. We completely miss gender issues and we miss microaggressions against people who are in a racial minority in any environment or any group. And these are the things that I think it's very easy for us to start working towards getting right we just need a commitment and a willingness to do it and a willingness to see it in ourselves. That's the biggest one is the willingness to see it in ourselves. That's number one. And number two, we have to look at the fact that of how much of this is systemic. How There's a cartoon I love. It shows a school where there's a ramp and one kid at a wheelchair at the end of the ramp. And then there's a staircase with a thousand kids waiting to go up the stairs. And the janitor is shoveling the stairs. And the person in the wheelchair says, why don't you shovel the ramp so I can go up? And the janitor says, look at all these people waiting. I have to shovel the stairs first. The kid in the wheelchair says, if you shovel the ramp, all of us can go up. And I that to me just pinpoints everything that the way of thinking can be changed. Yeah. People don't realize that when your workplace is inclusive of different voices, you get better outcomes. And the companies that are going to last into the next 20 years are going to be the ones that have people who see that is going to be problematic for this community, or we're not even considering this market because the people in the room making the decisions don't think about that community or aren't you know, members of that market. So from a corporate survival and success position, you better have your equity and inclusion set up. And that isn't, that doesn't mean wait until you're being pilloried in the press or wait until you can't hire the people you need because you only have systems set up to hire the people who look like you. That means start now, start now to get that culture shift because it's not just about, I break down diversity, equity, and inclusion into three separate segments. Diversity is who you bring through the door whether that's to your corporation, to your college campus, to your organization, your nonprofit, who you bring through the door is diversity. And you want to make sure multiple communities are represented. Equity means all of those people have equal opportunities to advance. And that's a big difference. People don't realize that 
the metrics, the metrics you're using to assess performance are diminishing one group and favoring another that doesn't necessarily get you the best outcome. One of the very simple examples I use is which is more highly penalized in a workplace, screaming or crying? And A, one of those is a more emotionally mature response. B, one of those does not create a toxic environment for everyone else in your workplace. There, there's just so many things that we don't even look at what gets penalized and what gets rewarded and the things that get rewarded that don't get us good outcomes. And the things that get rewarded that don't get us good outcomes often favor the group in the majority. So if you're not able to look at that, that means you're not able to advance people who are bringing so much more value. And then the last element is your inclusiveness. That is your corporate culture. I saw Daniel Lebetsky, who's the CEO of Kind, the Kind Bars maker, I'll put on LinkedIn some very complex definition of corporate culture. And he says, we're still working on this. What do you think? And I said, I have a much simpler definition of corporate culture. It's how we're all expected to treat each other. Just look at your corporate culture and how you're all expected to treat each other. And if one person's words diminish someone else in their workplace, there's no value to asking the person who said it, but what did you mean? What's in your heart? That, that's not what the, where the problem is. Yeah. The problem is what they said. Yes. So Gen Z in America, the, the, ne- the ge- generation that's After 15, 25 right now, yeah. right? The post-millennials. People still think of millennials as kids. Millennials are between 25 and 40. Yeah, they're between 25 <laughs> and 40. Gen Z is between 15 and 25. They're entering the workforce in the next decade. They're only 46% non-Hispanic white in America, which means um, with a 51% female ratio, that means only 22% entering the workforce now are white males. If your company isn't set up to hire and advance and reward and make feel inclusive people who are not white males, you don't have a workforce 10 years from now. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So that's when you ask what, that's what I do. That's my passion. That's where I'm coming from right now is. But what made you interested in that? So um, what's your own background? Why did you care about that? I started as a corporate securities lawyer in the Silicon Valley during the first big internet boom. And I, it was an extraordinary time to be there. I was working insane hours, but I got to work on huge transactions. I got to run huge transactions, even as a first, second year associate, because we just didn't have enough bodies in the office to do the work. So I was one of the lead attorneys for E-Trade when they went public. And even at the level I was working, I noticed subtle differences in the way the female attorneys and the male attorneys were treated, mm-hmm. both by clients, by partners, by our staff. As, as you know the story, I was asked if I wanted to enter my own timesheets into the billing system. Why would I have been asked that? Not one male attorney had ever been asked if he wanted to learn how to enter timesheet. We had a partner didn't know there was a timesheet billing system. So the very subtle differences sort of started to add up. I went from law to venture capital consulting to investment banking. I noticed it again as an investment banker. I'm the only woman in the room. Someone says, we need someone to take notes. I would never volunteer. Sure enough, the old white man at the front room would say, Valerie. And every time I would say, oh, since I'm the only person from my bank here, my client needs me to remain fully engaged. But I'm sure someone's assistant is available. And just make the point, I'm not the assistant in this room. Yeah. 
those kind of things added up. I eventually left the Silicon Valley. I, I, I became the VP of business development in an internet startup as well. And then my mom got sick. She had a brain tumor. She's still with us. I was, I was visiting her last week, but um, so I gave up everything. I didn't want to be in the Silicon Valley anymore. I was not being fulfilled in what I did. So I went back to Indiana. I took care of my mom for a year. At the end of that year, I moved to Los Angeles and started writing screenplays. And three, I wrote three screenplays very quickly. They were terrible. Everyone's first screenplays are terrible. If you're thinking about being a screenwriter, please start writing right now because the first things you do will be terrible. So get it out of your system. And then after those three, I took a class intro to screenwriting uh, and I wrote something that wasn't terrible. And that started a really wonderful career as a screenwriter. But I also noticed my experience was very, very different as a woman. Mm. And it's just starting to come out now in Hollywood. I've been very vocal about it. I had a meeting at Fox where they said, we love your writing. We want to get you on a Fox show. What, what shows do you watch? And I said, I watched my favorites 24. I'd love to write for that. And the VP of current programming at Fox looked at me and said, oh, 24 won't hire a woman. Any others? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As if that was a perfectly legal thing to say. To say, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's 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 rampant. I was on my way to a meeting to staff in television and my agent called. And I was at CAA, which at the time was the biggest agency in Hollywood. And my agent called and said, oh, they've canceled the meeting. And I, I was on my way there. And I said, what? Why? And he said, well, they hired a woman already. <laughs> and I said, are they fully staffed? And he said, no, but the, they had made an offer to this other woman and she accepted. And I said, and that means I can't meet with them. Why? And he said, well, cause they've already hired a woman. Like he literally couldn't understand why I couldn't accept what I was being told. <laughs> and I wish I could say that was the only time that happened. So when my, I'm in the Writers Guild of America, it's the union that represents screenwriters. When my union went on strike, I started writing books um, my first book was Happiness as a Second Language. And I got very interested in the brain science behind happiness. I also got very interested in the brain science behind gender differences. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of evolution of biology and history and brain science behind why women are so undervalued in workplaces. Mm -hmm. So I did that. Uh, I wrote those books. I started speaking about why we undervalue women in workplaces, what companies should be doing, what women can be doing. Women can make minor adjustments in order to get more highly rewarded in our workplaces, but companies really need to pay attention to what they're rewarding. Yeah. And then I started a tech company. So based on the brain science of happiness, and that was wonderful. It lasted for three years. In the course of running my tech company, I was asked to give a TED talk about being a female tech CEO. And so my TED talk was about the unconscious bias behind the perceptions around female anything, female tech CEOs, female lawyers, female athletes. As a result of the TED talk, I was being asked to speak a lot about unconscious bias, but a lot of it was about unconscious bias in terms of race relations. And I wasn't qualified to do that. So I just kept saying no, because I wasn't going into spaces where I didn't have authority. And at the time, I had a friend, we were, he was a business coach. I was coaching him on his speaking abilities and he was surreptitiously coaching me backwards. And um, 
when I told him that, I said, I keep getting asked to do these talks and I don't have the authority for that. And he said, well, then get the authority for that. So I dove deep into that as well. And I took a lot of courses. I read a bunch of books about it and I figured out where can I merge my knowledge in brain science? Oh, cause I have a certification in the science of happiness from Berkeley, which is brain science. Uh, cause Berkeley as my law degree is from Berkeley and my master's is in Berkeley. So Berkeley seemed the logical place to do some brain science study. Um, so the science of happiness stuff, I was able to merge with the unconscious bias stuff in terms of brain function. And it's, it's been a really powerful way to share a message. That's amazing. That's fantastic. And uh, it was so engaging when you were on Clubhouse, you know, that's why um, I thought it would be good to have you back and, you know, to one of our, you know, Shapani sessions, but also on this podcast, because uh, I just found, I found it so fascinating. So, okay, let's dive a little bit deeper into, I feel like there's a problem that hasn't been formulated properly when it comes to women and success. Um, and that problem is the fact that um, biologically, women find happiness uh, and men find happiness. But women find it through, um, you know, maybe being attracted to an alpha uh, male, right? So it's always been like that, generally speaking. And then men find happiness by finding a woman who is in a supportive role. But as we go into this new era of human evolution and social evolution, women are becoming more and more successful, right? And that's why in the workplace, you think about, like, for example, the gentleman who asked you if you wanted to take a note, right? So he's mm -hmm. subconsciously looking down, uh, you know, on you. And, and I just find that we are, we don't have a previous paradigm for women's success. Um, and, and maybe also the, the um, other uh, yeah, people from back, uh, diverse backgrounds. We have paradigms for women's success. They're just not in the fields that we revere. So let's go back to the brain science. Yeah. Because all of brain functioning, all of brain evolution was about the survival of the human species. And it happened over millions of years. It's not like men looked at women and thought, oh, you're the one who can keep my offspring alive. Therefore, I should mate with you. It's, it's that the men who mated with the women who were more likely to keep offspring alive had their offspring survive. And so after that happens for a couple generations, pretty soon the women with the greatest skills for keeping offspring alive are the ones whose genes keep getting passed down to the next generation. The men who chose those women are the ones whose genes keep getting passed down to the next generation. And brain activity is hereditary. And I, there's all kinds of studies I can share with you about brain activity being hereditary, but the easiest one, anyone who's a parent who is listening, you've looked at your kid and your kid has done something that you're, you look at it and think, I used to do that. They've never seen you do it, but it is exactly what you used to do because brain activity is hereditary. And as a result, when you extrapolate that over 7 million years of human evolution, certain instincts are being bred into our brains and it's what keeps us alive. I mean, as a species, that's what keeps us alive. What happened is about 2 million years ago, humans started living in tribes where it, now the survival wasn't just about the keeping yourself alive or keeping your offspring alive. It was about keeping the tribe alive and survival in the biological definition means 
you're able to live long enough to reproduce and you keep your offspring alive through their reproductive age. Not that they reproduce, that's their survival. But if your offspring reach reproductive age, I always say to people, if your children have gone through puberty, congratulations, you've survived. But what happened was when we had to think about the survival of the tribe, we then developed all kinds of new skills in our brain. And when that process started, when that living in tribes process started, the human brain was the size of a meatball. It was the size of a meatball. It tripled in size. It took about 1.2 million years for the brain to triple in size. And it, it didn't just blow up. It added compartments. And one of the compartments it added was the prefrontal cortex. Well, the prefrontal cortex is what controls all of our executive functions, all the functions we didn't need until we started living in tribes, like control of our emotions, our social interaction, our complex decision-making. Not reactive decision-making that happens from the amygdala. The amygdala is what triggers the hypothalamus to fire up the hypothalamic pituitary axis and engage, engage the uh, adrenal glands, releasing cortisol or, adren or adrenaline into your system when you need to fight or flight, fight, flight, or freeze, actually. That's amygdala. That's been around 7 million years. Prefrontal cortex, been around less than 2 million years. What the prefrontal cortex controls is all of our tribal interaction, all of our tribal behavior. And the tribes that survived were the ones that figured out, didn't figure out, but by evolution it occurred, don't let the women die. Like if your tribe needs to reproduce itself and it has 10 men and 10 women and eight men die, your tribe's going to be able to reproduce itself. If your tribe has 10 men and 10 women and eight women die, your, your tribe cannot reproduce itself. And that tribe goes away. And when that tribe goes away, it gets merged into tribes that figured out, don't let the women die. So we're all descendants of the tribes that made sure women didn't die. What that looked like in terms of activity is that the men went out and did everything that would cause instant death. The instant death activity was hunting for big meat and protecting the cave. And that was it. Pretty much done. Man's day over. He engaged in combat and he hunted big meat and his day was over. The women did literally everything else. Every other task was done by women. They, everything, they sewed the loincloths, they skinned the animals, they cooked the food, they fished, they foraged, they engaged in early stages of agriculture, they tended to the sick, they raised the young, they kept the fire burning. Every single other task was done by women. If it didn't cause instant death, women did it. Um, so, that division of labor took place before the human brain had a prefrontal cortex. And so, so many of our instincts evolved differently. The male instinct is to leap into action when faced with a problem. The female instinct is to analyze when faced with a problem. Male instinct is towards competition with other males to be the leader. Female instinct is towards building consensus among the group to keep the offspring alive. Male instinct is towards aggression because you had to be aggressive. If you're running, you know, at a saber-toothed tiger and it turns around and you can't run away, it's going to eat you. So the, you know, the female instinct is towards nurturing because those complementary set of instincts is what kept a tribe alive. And those complementary instincts were equally valuable and equally valued 
about 20,000 years ago, combat between tribes evolved into commerce between tribes. And so because men were the only ones leaving the caves, men were the only ones engaging with other men. And so that system of commerce between tribes evolved to reflect everything that had developed in combat between tribes, like competition and aggression and risk, making the quickest decision and moving forward with it. Women don't make quick decisions and move forward. We gather all the facts and make sure we're right before making a decision. So that's, yeah, fascinating. So I had a, a really interesting podcast interview with uh, one of our panelists, uh, who is a professor of economics, experimental economics at San Francisco University. And, and I've, I've said this to everybody because she mentioned something that's quite, you know, that really was like uh, mind open, uh, you know, a uh, mind opening no mind uh eye opening <laughs> yeah and, and that was like it's my english right oh. um and uh, and she said that um the differences between the sexes is much less than the differences uh within the sexes so basically like for example that there there's more variety but in, uh, within women than mm -hmm. it is between because we say men are like this women are like this but what she was saying was that actually within the female sex there is so many so like all of these things that you just mentioned actually they are the, the uh you know that that women think more are more careful like i'm not like that i i'm a risk taker right and i'm uh i i have a lot more aggression uh, you know i have a lot more I, I i've taken a lot of risks and i and that's why a lot of people tell me Oh, you must have been born. You should have been born a man. You were you were supposed to be a man, mm -hmm. um, you know. And and something went wrong, and you came out as a woman. A woman, and I'm like, uh, you know, I don't feel in any way or shape or form. I don't feel masculine. I feel very yeah. feminine, you know. So, um, so there's there's a spectrum to go to your point from from all the extreme femaleness, uh, you know, female instincts, like all the pure, like nurturing consensus building, cooperation, expression of emotions, like pure female instinct down here, women would be on this spectrum, right? Up to here. And then of the pure male instinct, taking risk, aggression, competition, quick decision-making, the, you know, the ones who are the least like that all the way up to here, but you'll notice if this is the male spectrum and this is the female spectrum, there's a lot of crossover in this middle part, but there's still of the pure female instinct, there's a segment of it that is just more, there are just more women going to be like that. And of the pure male instinct, there's this segment over here that just does not, you know, there's no crossover with female gender. And I get this pushback a lot from, you know, some brain scientists, other brain scientists are willing to look at facts. Um, Regini Verma at University of Pennsylvania studies this with actual brain scans. And there are st statistically significant differences, of course, between within any population, you take all the women in the world, you're going to see a wide spectrum, you take all the men in the world, you're going to see a wide spectrum. But just here's one fact, and I'm not saying this in a way to be disparaging, but 
98% of all homicides in the world are committed by men. Yeah, that's right. Regardless of society, regardless of culture, regardless of religion, because men are more instinctively aggressive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are aggressive women. They're up here in the spectrum. They, they fall within the male. I think even when women are aggressive, it's a different kind of aggression. Aggression, it, it like it's qualitatively different. Uh, yeah. You know, definitely. I I I think uh, that's right. Um. So, uh, okay. So now, the problem that we need to state is that we now are we are talking about we want women to succeed, but mm -hmm. as women succeed, uh, we are entering a new era, especially my generation, you know, millennials and then Gen Z, you know, uh, as they succeed, there is no previous paradigm in terms of how to deal with it. Like, uh, like uh, you know, like um, both within the work uh, environment, but especially like in a uh, family and relationship kind of environment, you know, and there isn't there, like, you don't, you don't quite, know how to be um i mean I, I i find that sometimes you know i i just don't know especially in like in my personal life because i i like somebody who's as feisty as me right and right. is like as driven as me but actually generally speaking men who are like that and and the same thing applies in the work environment like if you are gonna like uh you know be um in a work relationship with somebody as well generally speaking people who have that kind of, you know, feistiness and you can call it alphaness or whatever, they don't like other people who are the same. Uh, they, they like the complimentary thing. That might be too much of a generalization. I think one thing that I'm, I'm Gen X and one thing that the great benefit that Gen X created for society is that we were the ignored generation. We were the latchkey kids because we were the first generation whose parents by and large got divorced. My, my mother's generation, her parents, as miserable as they were, would never think of getting divorced. But that generation that parented Gen X, they all got divorced, which means we had a whole lot of single moms. We had a whole lot of working moms, this whole big generational shift. So luckily we have a lot of men who were raised by working moms. Mm -hmm. um, they were raised by single moms. They were latchkey kids. They weren't tended to the way their fathers were tended to when they were children. And so they didn't have that expectation. So I have found among Gen X men, I found a great deal of not expectation of equality and the celebration of my success. And both my sister and I are married to men who are ecstatic at what at how successful we are and they are full partners at home as well literally 50 50 within our home 50 50 within our you know my sister's home with her husband in terms of the division of labor and those men exist and what's happening the shift we're seeing is that women are setting an expectation that you are going to behave this way if you're going to have the privilege of being with me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of men are either naturally that way already, or they're rising to it. But we're also finding that men got pigeonholed for the last 2 million years as well. There are a significant number of men who would be perfectly happy not to have to be the 
mastodon slayer every single day and to be able to be with somebody who will take up some of the slack and who can say, I'd like to take a year to write my book and have a, a partner who says, we got this, honey, my business is taking off. Don't worry about it. It's, it's what, it's the expectation that we bring into it. If you as a successful woman say, I expect someone to be my partner, then people meet your level of expectation. When you're expecting someone to put his career prior over your relationship or put his career over your career over your relationship, that becomes self-fulfilling in a lot of ways, or that becomes the man you find yourself attracted to, or you find yourself with. I, I have a friend who's a, um, he's a mid-level executive at a media company and he and his wife just separated and they've been together since they were teenagers. Uh, well, she was a teenager and he was in his twenties. Not like that. I mean, she was like 19 <laughs> and he was, I think 23, 24 when they got together, but her father had just died. He was the only man she met who was you know, already in his career. And so he fulfilled this very powerful, important role in her life. They're now in their mid thirties and he hasn't adjusted that role. Mm -hmm. And I had to share with him because he thinks the problem is she, the thing she gets upset about. And I had to share with him, she doesn't need a father figure anymore. She needs a partner. And from everything he told me about what they were going through, I said, you haven't been a partner. And he took a big step back and he, he actually realized that. And he's working to change his ability to be a partner instead of just the authority on everything, which is the position he's enjoyed for the last 16 years of their relationship. And yeah, th there's a really good study that I can't, I can't cite who it is, but it's findable about the success of a marriage is dependent on how two things, how much the man loves the woman mm -hmm. and how much the woman respects the man. Mm -hmm. And so as women, if we want to make our relationship successful, we have to make sure we're providing an environment in which he can keep loving us. And as a man to make our relationship successful, he has to provide an environment in which she can keep respecting him. And that goes back to how you started. Uh, who's the Getzman? Oh, I have the, the researcher who looked, who can within 15 seconds determine whether marriage is gonna last or not. Oh, I've based, heard about this. Yeah, yeah. based on how many, um, it's facial, like our facial signals, we have like, what is it? 5,000 combinations of facial signals. And our, if, our, if the facial signal uh, flashes contempt, Mm -hmm. within the first 15 seconds of observing them, he knows the marriage isn't going to last. And how do you see that translating in the workplace? You know, because I think the same kind of dynamics is happening in the workplace. And that's part of the reason why women um, have been kind of held back a little bit. Well, not a little bit, a lot, you know, in the workplace, right? And like, when I say women have been held back, you know, sometimes people reply to our, you know, um, invitation email and say, but I'm very successful in my work and, you know, I have no problem. But I'm like, okay, I'm just talking about the big picture. It's great if you don't have a problem. So come in and help other people not have a problem, you know. And when we look at the top tier, right, the world is run 
by 10, you know, 12 corporations and half in China, half in America, and all of them are run by men and, and founded by men. So I think that we need to have another 10, 12, you know, that are, that are going to be also run by women so that we have some level of balance in terms of the, the perspective. So everything you just said, how does it translate in the workplace? One of the things I, one of my latest sayings that now I've seen other people quoting around on uh, LinkedIn is we'll have true equality when everybody has the right to be as mediocre as the majority. Okay. And so what's happening in corporations, the fortune 500 in America are only, or I guess they're worldwide global corporations, but what makes up the fortune 500, only 5% of the CEOs are women. Yeah. So the men who run Fortune 500 companies don't need to be any better. Mm -hmm. They can be as mediocre as they are because it just shows that, not to say they're mediocre, but I'm saying they don't have to strive to do better than what they're doing right now because they're doing just fine in relation to the other men who run the other Fortune 500 companies. Here is where the paradigm shift is happening. All of the research is showing Companies with a gender diverse board of directors have 31% higher value in the stock market. Companies with racially and gender diverse management teams have 33% higher revenues. It's a slow walk of trees, as Toni Morrison says about the race movement. All of these movements are a slow walk of trees, but there is a time when people will start to realize, oh, wait a minute, when women are in charge, we get better outcomes. When women are in the room and we're listening to what they have to say, our companies do better. And one of the other things that happens that really hinders women is a board of directors will choose to hire a female CEO or a female a woman will become the CEO of a company when it's already failing. Mm -hmm. This happens very frequently for two reasons. One, the board might be throwing a Hail Mary and think, okay, well, at least hire her. You know, the company's going down in flames, hire her. That's one reason women get the opportunity in the first place. But the other issue is a male who's a CEO will look at that company and say, that company is not doing well. I don't want to step into that role. I will wait for another offer to come along. A woman probably knows that's the only public company CEO offer she's going to get. And so women are more likely to accept the offer to step in and run a failing company. And yet you look at Carly Fiorini, I'm not a huge Carly fan for multiple reasons. Carly Fiorini saved HP. And it infuriates me that that is not part of the narrative. HP was going down in flames when Carly was invited to be the CEO and took the position and she turned that company around and she saved that company. And then the board of directors turned on her and they used a token female board member as at the spearhead so that it couldn't be about her being a woman, but it was a hundred percent about her being a woman. Mm. And these are the things that we have to start paying attention to. So the companies that are going to be successful in the next 20 years are the companies that have figured out Women bring so much value. We have to stop diminishing that value. The flip side is 
women need to announce that our presence has value. And we're not great at doing that. Mm-hmm. I was so- actually going to say, you know, I was actually asking, going to ask you, okay, you know, this is what the companies need to do. And do you remember we, when we were on Clubhouse, someone said, um, the people who should be here aren't here. And, and I replied, I was like, everybody who should be here is here. Because I always think we cannot change the company cultures overnight. Um, I'm in my heart, I'm a bit of an anarchist. I don't like governments. I don't like systems. You know, I'm a Nietzsche and I'm like, you know, the individual has a, has a responsibility, can make a difference. That's why I started, you know, uh, Fempeak because I was like, okay, I wake up in the morning, I don't like what I see. What am I going to do about it? Am I just going to sit here and complain? It's not going to happen, right? So uh, the way I see it, we need more women to create companies, right? To found companies and to- Which, which means we need more venture capital to invest in women founded Exactly. Companies. And then of course, and of course, yes, of course, it's a chicken and egg situation, right? But at the same time, I'm not going to wait for anybody. I'm going to bulldoze my way, right? And and I just think that there are ways to do that. Um, and I may not succeed, but at least I'm going to give it an absolutely, you know, everything that I have. At my uh, and and even in in the process, even if I, you know, inspire like ten people and change their lives, that's you know I've, I've done at least. Well, that becomes a ripple. I mean, those ten people aren't you know living their lives in a vacuum. I, my mother, when my dad left, she had no education. She had two little girls to feed. She was working as a secretary at an insurance agency. And she saw the adjusters coming in every day and out. And somebody said to her, you know, you could do that job. And she became an insurance adjuster, which was a professional job you could have with just a high school degree. And she was able to raise us nicely with that income. And I, I never really thought much about that. Well, I have, I have over a hundred cousins. I'm from a, I'm huge families on both sides. My mom's a huge family. My dad's a huge family, but the female cousins of my generation on my mom's side, and I'm just learning this like in the last decade, they have shared with me so much what an enormous difference my mother made in their lives. And I said, what? And cause none of the other women in that family had careers and it never even occurred to me. I have a cousin who's an engineer and she says, I, until I saw your mother do it, I never knew that was possible. I have another cousin who's an accountant. I have it's, and they've all said, they just say, yeah, once I saw your mom actually have a salary, that was sort of what made like all of their moms, even if they worked one, one's mom was a waitress and uh, they like one was a cashier they not to diminish those jobs those are significant jobs and they're important and they put food on the table too but a whole generation of women in my family saw my mom have a job where she got a salary and that was revolutionary for them just that one little act and so yes when you say i might only help 10 women those 10 women are showing up that other women see and so this is when when we ask so yes, women should be starting businesses, but women should also be succeeding within the corporate structure yeah. if that's what they want. Or not everybody's designed to be an entrepreneur. Of course. Yes. And, and so we have to find ways to make sure those women have the opportunities to advance. What I say to women is 
never behave like a man. That is not, you don't get rewarded or valued by behaving like a man, but look at what is getting rewarded. Look at what is valued in your workplace and make sure you're displaying the traits that get rewarded. Make sure you're doing what gets valued. Yeah, and the, it's the same thing in the in the startup and in the entrepreneurship, yeah. right? Like for example, I've seen women saying when they're explaining to me about their business and trying to raise investment, they're like, oh, we are thinking about impact, impact. And, you know, like, it, it's not all about money. And I'm like, well, when you're talking For to the investors, investors. <laughs> you yeah. know, they're going to be, <laughs> they're going to care yes. about. <laughs> yes. Um, and there are impact investors. That's true too. But yeah, the, the other issue I saw when I was fundraising with my company, I couldn't believe how many times this happened. I would be at some pitch event where, you know, a bunch of companies get up on stage to pitch and some woman would get up on stage and she'd say, well, I started my first company by bootstrapping it. We built a product. We did really well. We wound up selling for about $2 million. We just had friends and family investors. So I started my second company. That went really well. We built a product. We learned a lot. We, did, we didn't survive. And it's, you know, it, it, it was a good lesson. I wish we'd been able to pay people back their money. But, you know, now I've started this third company and here's what we do. And that's how a woman would start. And then everybody like, well, let's see if she can make this work. After, by the way, she just said she sold the company for $2 million, right? But then some man would get up on stage and he'd say, so my first company raised $2 million and my second company raised $4 million. They're not around, but here's what we're doing now. And everyone would like, write him a check. I'd be like, did we miss the point where he raised, he lost $6 million of other people's money? That doesn't matter. They're no, like, oh, look how like good he is at raising money. Yeah. yeah so, look how good he is at raising money. Whereas God forbid she built something from scratch. And so one of the things I tell women is like own your success and diminish your failure. Women lead with failure. Mm -hmm. And I I wish I understand. I I've had so many women say to me, but don't you think it, it makes me authentic? Or don't you think they want to know that I've learned from that? Or that I've grown from that? I say, no. <laughs> no. They want to know that you are going to kick ass and take names in the company you're starting that they're investing in or in the role they're about to put you in. Confidence yeah. and competence are perceived as the same trait. If you are highly competent and you behave without confidence, you will be perceived as incompetent. This is amazing. And, Look, I wrote these yeah. down. We should definitely talk about this in our session. This is the yeah. kind of thing when they're pitching, you know, like I want to bring up a few people to the stage and to, to tell us their pitch. Right. And yes. I want to pinpoint all of these things. Right. Good. Good. Because <laughs> here's the other issue we see among men most often is that people who are highly confident go years before anybody requires them to prove it. As I was speaking at a law firm and they afterwards said to me that confidence, competence thing, that that is the one thing that rang the most true because we had a partner here that the clients loved. They loved him and he was a terrible attorney and we had to clean up so much of his mess. And they finally figured out the phrase they used to describe him, which I have stolen and I use a lot is he was often wrong, but never uncertain. Love it. <laughs> So, and it, it's like it's not it's, it, yeah women do talk talk about think about authenticity at this time so like, oh but it's not authentic right but at the same time you know like you have yeah. to um you have to see what is being rewarded right 
And yes. And also I'll ask anybody listening who's hearing this have in any way in this last 45 minutes, has I, have I seemed inauthentic? Have I seemed like I'm not authentic? Yeah. Have I discussed my failures? Do you think I don't have failures? Yeah, of course. We all do. Right. So it doesn't make you authentic to discuss your failures. It makes you authentic to live in what makes you passionate and share with the world why you're great at what you do. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's the best place to bring it uh, to an end. But I've got a, a note on my wall here, uh, some like a sentence that stood out for me from Napoleon Hill many years ago, which says, uh, like, when an idea comes to you, every minute that it lives, it has a better chance of surviving, right? And, that, and like, you need that in order for, for the for the idea to live, you need to have the confidence to feed it, to feed it its fuel, right? Right. And every time you doubt yourself, every time you, you know, you focus on your failures, that's a little bit of fire taken away from that. There's a little bit of fuel taken away from that fire. And when you talk about, you know, focus on your passion, which is what I'm doing right with this. And I'm like, you know, I, I've came up with the idea out of a breakup and I was like, okay, I'm going to do something with it. And I'm going to turn that kind of pain into something fascinating that's going to, you know, a journey that's going to be an uh, amazing experience for myself, but also for many other people. And every day I wake up and I feed that fire. Every day, you know, I've now raised 300,000 pounds, like about $400,000 uh, for, for this. Uh, and, um, you know, um, hire the tech team. They're rebuilding the platform. Um, so people are starting to really uh, take it seriously and believe in it, right? Like uh, I had four Zoom calls and I raised four hundred thousand dollars. You know. Okay. So um, you know, I came to the UK in two thousand and five with one suitcase. You know, like um, English is not my first language. I have an accent. I'm, you know, uh, I have ADHD. Spectrum of autism and um, you know dyslexia, all that stuff. Who cares? Yeah, none of that is who you are or what you're building. So yeah, so let's talk about when we talk about this um, on our in our session on um, you know this week, uh, and of course this podcast will go out after that. But what what I'd really like to delve more in into is how is the how right? So we talk we're going to talk about like how do you pitch yourself, uh, and then how do you where do you get that energy that um you know where are you gonna i i get it in my gut right i just like i literally i'm like i've always been thinking it doesn't matter what the world outside is like or what it you know what the situation is in my gut i have an energy something that is going to get me uh, forward and, and help me go forward and i will find if i don't have the answers that's the confidence bit right, right. i'm like you know I may not have the answer, but I'm confident that I will find the answer. Right. And we can talk about how do we get there. And, and for the women who don't feel that right now, there are baby steps. There are baby steps they can start now and get exactly. there. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you so much, Valerie. I'm sure, it's a pleasure. I'll see you on Wednesday morning. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Valerie Alexander and found it as insightful as I did. Be sure to subscribe to the Somi Aryan podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or any other one of your favorite platforms. And don't forget to give it a five star and write a review. Also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Clubhouse at Somi Aryan. That's S-O-M-I-A-R-I-A-N. Finally, if you're not yet a Fanpeak member, head over to fanpeak.ai, register and join a community that actively supports women's professional growth.